If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Once the crinoline comes in, you can change direction and you can negotiate across your way across the, the floor. And it became a bit like a game of um, bumper cars, really. That was Lucy Worsley on the relationship between fashion and dancing. Future historians, I think, will look at it and say, what a fantastic way this is into the mindset, into the imagination of uh, 20th and 21st century forebears. And that was Dominic Sandbrook discussing the history of science fiction. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Hello and welcome to our second podcast of November 2014. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. For her latest BBC TV series, historian Lucy Worsley has recently donned her dancing shoes to explore the history of British dance from the stately minuet to the energetic Charleston. Our features editor, Charlotte Hodgman, chatted to Lucy to find out what dancing could tell us about what was happening elsewhere in society at the time, and also how she kept her cool dancing in the heavy dresses of the 18th century. So Lucy, you've um, you've recently teamed up with Strictly Come Dancing's Len Goodman um, to explore the history of British dance from the 17th century to the Second World War. Um, So what dances did you focus on in the series and, and why did you pick those? Ah, well, we chose three separate dancers from three separate centuries to be our performance dancers. So um, in each episode of the programme, we're sort of set the challenge of learning um, the minuet from the 18th century, uh, the polka from the 19th century and the Charleston 
from the 20th century. And um, that that's that's a real that was a real journey of discovery for me because I, I can't dance at all. <laughs> and um, I had lessons. I, I got a lot more lessons than Len did because Len was assumed to obviously knew how to dance already and then at the end we would do a big performance with lots of other people who knew these dances in the right clothes and a sort of correct ballroom setting um but along the way it's not it's not all about the dancing really it's it's just the way into um the social history and what they wore and architecture and music and that sort of thing as well so we've covered a big a big time uh, period, 300 years, but it's it's just proved a really illuminating way into the history of society, I'd say. Yeah, what did the dancers actually show you about the era in which they were, sort of, you know, popular and in which they were danced? Well, it's, there's sort of two answers to this. In one sense, we can sort of chart a journey from terribly formal, terribly hierarchical, the minuet, it's all very stiff, you're not allowed to touch your partner except with the tips of your fingers type thing. Uh, through to, you know, liberation. Today, um, I don't know about you, but I, I was never taught to dance properly, formally at school. Dancing to me is just bopping around wildly. And that's <laughs> that's because we live in a liberated and permissive society, one might think. But at the same time, clearly people in the 18th century were doing other dances apart from minuets. They were doing wild and rude dances and getting up to all crazy stuff. And And today, there's a massive school of very formal ballroom dancing that has its sort of apogee in, in strictly come dancing. So there's always been the official story and then what's really going on throughout the history of dancing, I'd say. So you do find some similarities then between today and, you know, say the 17th or 18th centuries? Well, some similarities and some differences. What, what, what does seem very alien about the world of the minuet is that um, certainly for people at the top of society, life is extremely hierarchical and you can see that in classical Georgian architecture with its idea of the orders and in people's clothing that really distinguished between the ranks of society in a way that doesn't happen anymore in the very idea of a court where an aristocracy would get itself together and sort of line itself up in terms of importance and doing a minuet was actually very like Strictly Come Dancing is today because just two people would do it the two most important people in the room would do a show minuet and everybody else will be standing around the outside watching them and sort and sort of sort of secretly judging them as well that they were really supposed to be admiring them and uh, some some Georgians like like Lord Chesterfield for example said that this this is this is just a way of life Lord Chesterfield said that you should do everything as if it was a minuet he talks about doing everything in minuet time um which means walking or, or taking off your hat or um, greeting people. You should do everything in this sort of very graceful, elegant, unhurried manner. But clearly the world didn't work like that. And other people in the pleasure gardens, for example, were dressed up in outrageous costumes as things like nuns and devils, and they were having a high old time. And they weren't necessarily following all these very strict rules. So for, for dancers of the minuet, which I assume were kind of the, maybe the higher... Um, echelons of society um, it, it was quite an important part of their education I suppose to learn how to dance ah oh, well here's here's the terrible here's the terrible trap um, and this is this seems to hold true throughout a great swathe of history as well um, if you are a true aristocrat right you 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 don't need to learn how to dance you were brought up with it for at, at your mother's knee it was just imbued into you from your childhood if you are a would-be aristocrat or a middle-class person, then you have to make a real effort to learn it. 
So you have to buy yourself a manual or you have to go to a dancing teacher. And the sad thing is that you're never going to be quite as good <laughs> as as the, you know, the the true born aristocrat and um ballroom that the rules of the ballroom are like like many things about life in the past seem to be intended to to separate the sheep from the goats the people who really know what they're doing and the the would-be pretenders who can't quite get it right and so we're going to look down on them and how have attitudes to to you know dancing in public changed since the 17th century do you think well mm, so the 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 time at which dancing seems to have been the most political, the hottest potato of all, seems to have been in the 17th century. And the Puritans in particular were absolutely dead against people dancing in public. It's quite important to say in public. They thought it was kind of all right to dance in the circle of your own family and friends in your own house. So um, uh, a point to remember here is that Oliver Cromwell, for example, he did dance at his daughter's wedding, but he wasn't dancing in public. And there's this fabulous, brilliant um, Puritan book published in 1632 by William Prynne that's called Histriomastics. And it's over a thousand pages of ranting against dancing. And this got William Prynne into terrible trouble because one of the things that he did in his book, which was also against acting, um, he, he, um, he suggested that Henrietta Maria the Queen was a notorious whore because she had danced in public. And he never came right out and he said this, but the implication was there. So he got put into the Tower of London and he got his ears cut off. Uh, what, what's what's really amusing about, well, it's, it's kind of, um, it, amusing is perhaps not the right word, but he came out of the tower and do you know what? He did it again and they had to put him back in and cut all the rest of his ears off. I don't think they did the job properly first time. Um, so he's he's an extremely vigorous voice of the Puritan movement against the, you know, the evils, the perils of dancing. You'll go straight down to hell if you dance. And it does, you can see this in the cultural context of um, the years before the Civil War. Things are going to shape up to, if you're in favour of dancing, you're likely to be on the royalist side, on the king's side. If you're against it, it's very likely that you're going to be for the opposition, for the parliamentarians. And a parliament famously chops down all the maypoles because they want to stop people dancing on village greens. Oh, right. I mean, so when did it become sort of acceptable then to, to, to be dancing in public? Well, after the Civil War, when um, the Commonwealth ends and King Charles II comes back again, uh, what do they do? They put the maypoles back up again. And this is a very important symbol of the return of uh, what might be thought of normality, the return of the king back to the back to the good old times. Um, a lot of people sort of measured that from the moment in which the enormous maypole in the Strand in London that was 40 metres high, it was really, really tall, was was put back up again to mark the ending of the Commonwealth. And from then on, yes, dancing is fine. Um, and then particularly in the 18th century, it's more than fine. It's important. It's essential uh, part of the life of the court. And, and this is the age of the, the minuet, which everybody's basically copying from the dancing mad Louis XIV. As with so much of the rest of 18th century court life, it all seems to go back to Louis XIV in Versailles. And I mean, you've written a feature for us and you've looked at um, other types of dancing over this period as well. Um, and you mentioned in that that, you know, messages were conveyed or through dancing, um, things like politics and, uh, you know, wealth and status and that sort of thing. Can you explain a little bit more about that and how that was done? Yes. Well, there's all kinds of messages that you can express through 
the way that you dance. Let me let me think of a few interesting examples of that. So dancing and politics, international relations, that they're all tied up together. In um, the late 1930s, for example, a lot of people were very worried in Britain about the arrival of um, American influences. And this was particularly to do with um, a slight worry about disapproval of uh, black rhythms, the rhythms of ragtime and then of um, jazz and then a swing as they became. Um, so they thought, right, we need, some, we need some British dancers of our own. We need some wholesome dancers. And perhaps the most famous of these was, was quite literally invented in 1938. And it was called the Lambeth Walk. And it was uh, what was called a novelty dance. So it was sort of um, created by a dance hall chain called Mecca. And they would um, they would release these these new dances, come to Mecca dance halls, dance the new dance, including the Lambeth Walk, which they sort of promoted as an ancient an ancient Cockney dance. And um, some people from the Mass Observation Project actually went to Lambeth and they discovered all these aged residents who were happy to swear, yes, this is an ancient dance that's been danced for centuries on the streets of Lambeth. But actually, no, not at all. It was it was. It was it originated in a stage musical. <laughs> it was it was a completely obvious day, um, but at that particular juncture, people were looking for something that was patriotic and and British, and it made them feel better to do the Lambeth Walk. I, I can imagine because it's a very jolly dance. You sort of walk around in a big circle, and you put your thumbs up in the air, and at the end you go, "Oi!" <laughs> I can imagine it was just the treat for raising your spirits in those very scary late thirties, early forties days. And and you also mentioned that the the waltz, which which trust today seems quite a you know a formal dance, was actually seen as quite um quite a disgraceful dance, wasn't it, back in the day? Well, do you know what? Every single new dance, some people are going to think it's disgraceful, dangerous, depraved, and um, you see it with the Charleston, and you see it with um, the so-called animal dances of the 1890s, the ones they did to ragtime music. And you see it with the waltz as well in the early 19th century. And the reason it was considered to be quite depraved was because 18th century dancing, minuet dancing, had involved you only touching the hand of the other person. And you, 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 you'll have seen this in um, uh, feature films as well. You know, they, they dance in rows. If, if they're not dancing just a single minuet, they'd be doing country dances in rows and you'd be changing your partner throughout the dance. And now with the waltz, what you do is you put your arms right around your partner. So you're embracing them and you dance with the same partner for the whole dance. So you get, you know, a good five or six minutes in which to whisper in each other's ears or whatever it is people were thought to have been doing. And um, another sort of, oh, there's such a sad little moment in the history of the waltz in the love affair, the, the, the fatal love affair between Lord Byron, the mad, bad and dangerous to know poet, and Lady Caroline Lamb. Now he had been when when they were when they were lovers he wouldn't let her waltz with anybody else because he was too jealous. But when they split up, they met at a ball and he said to her, "Oh, you can waltz with whoever you like now." And poor Lady Caroline Lamb, who's a bit unstable, ran into the supper room, picked up a knife, and tried to slit her wrists. And guess what? This did nothing for the reputation of waltzing. It became a Regency scandal. I can imagine, yeah. <laughs> Um, and you mentioned that in the, in the series, um, you, you've recreated these dances, you know, as, as they would have been danced. How did you cope with, you know, the, the, the big dresses when you're dancing and things like that, all those little bits that you don't think about? 
Oh, well, big dresses actually help you to dance in a funny sort of a way. Um, if you think of uh, an 18th century lady's uh, dress that she would have been wearing at a ball or an assembly room, um, it's very tight around the middle. You're, you're laced into these stays and it has these massive hoops that go out to the sides and it actually makes you stand up straight. I mean, it's hard work wearing these dresses, but they do force you into a very sort of graceful deportment. The sleeve holes are set quite far back, so you have to... Um, you have to sort of straighten your shoulder blades. And the sleeves, if you look at them closely, they're cut on a curve. So your arms are forced to adopt a sort of balletic position. And you can't droop your hands down by the sides because the, the panniers are there, the hoops are going out sideways. And it's also very interesting as you get into the 19th century how fashion and dancing are just interlinked. Um, if you look at what they were wearing for early waltzes so we're in the sort of Jane Austen regency period here you can you can visualize um Jane Austen dresses which are long and white and floaty and the ladies looked in them like uh classical Grecian columns and the early waltz involves a lot of up and down it wasn't so much round and round it was up and down and <laughs> a bit like the the, the bit of a drill going zoop, zoop, up and down on the toes um but then as you move into the Victorian period skirts get bigger and the waltz gets twirlier. It's more about the round and round. And the high point of this is the crinoline when this particular fashion comes in. That's partly to do with technology because once you can produce metal eyelets or eye holes for your corset, you can do it up much tighter. You get a tiny waist. And you can emphasize that by having a massive, great big crinoline, this metal construction underneath your skirt. And that really helps you to dance in a swirly way, like they do in um, The King and I, for example, the Viennese waltz. You can imagine people twirling gracefully around a, down, uh, around a dance, um, dance floor. And at that point, um, the rules sort of break down a bit because these Regency waltzes going up and down, up and down would have all been going together in a circle. But once the crinoline comes in, you can change direction and you can negotiate across your way across the, the floor. And it became a bit like a game of um, bumper cars, really, because you had to, had to avoid the other ladies. Well, your partner had to avoid the other ladies. The man is always, I'm sorry to say, the man is always con in control of these, of these couple dances. It's very slightly distasteful, I would say. <laughs> but, I mean, surely you must have got very hot doing that, though. That is a bit of a mystery to me, because all these dancing manuals say... Um, don't um, don't sweat. Don't get too hot. Don't jump around too much. Be very graceful and ladylike. But wearing all that clobber, it's just unavoidable. You do massively overheat. <laughs> um, and that's where accessories come in. I suppose the fan is, it's not just a plaything. They're incredibly useful for air conditioning yourself. And Victorian ladies wore these little silk um, fingerless gloves to, to soak up the sweat of their palms and they also carried into the ballroom things like that were sort of um, hand sanitizers little um, carved balls and inside that you would put some scented wax and you'd hold that in the middle of your hands to cool them down and to make them smell nice but I'm sorry to say that gentlemen don't seem to have had so many so many gadgets and accessories to help them cool down I, I suppose it's worse if a lady sweats than if, if a man does um, and how long did it take you to actually master the dances? Were they were they hard to learn? 
I would have to. I, I would admit that that Len and I never really got the hang of the minuet, because <laughs> if you look at people minuetting, you think, oh, they're just walking around. But it it it's not that. There's all this very subtle rising and falling with the feet. So you have to take these funny little pointy steps up and down, up and down, and then you have to remember all the figures, which are the movements across the floor, and um, it's 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 slightly alien to us. And Len obviously is a brilliant modern modern day ballroom dancing he, dancer. He can he, he can do all that backwards. But he he was saying how it didn't help him at all. Really, it was just a completely different way of doing things. The polka was perhaps easier for us to get our heads around because it was more flowing. It seemed more like dancing is to us. And the one that was just brilliant fun, and I loved doing it, was the was the Charleston. But that was so fast that. I wasn't quite as good as it as maybe I I had thought that I was going to be because because I, I have a sort of flapper haircut myself. I thought right, I've got the hair. I'll definitely be able to do this dance. <laughs> so was that the most energetic of the dances then? Yes, 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 um, absolutely so. And that's why the flappers were wearing uh, loose clothing basically so that they could jump about and twist out there. You know how you 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 put your knees together and you lift up your your foot and it kicks out to the side. Oh yes, so you, yes. You could not be doing that in a long dress or uh, a hobble skirt, which had been the immediately sort of um, pre-war fashion. Um, there's, there's dancing, dancing and dress um, just, just really work hand in hand. And to wear the flapper dress after the minuet dress kind of felt like being naked, really, because it was so different. And the moves were a world away from each other as well. What was the most surprising thing that you, you learned while you were you know, researching for the series and learning the dances? Oh, I was particularly intrigued by the early 20th century revival of female Morris dancing. I was just, I was so happy to learn about this. Um, it was a big part of the sort of late 19th, early 20th century um, middle class philanthropic desire to improve the lives of inner city London workers. And in particular, there was a lady called Mary Neal who was a colleague of Cecil Sharp. Now, a lot of people have heard of Cecil Sharp. He was a sort of um, collector of folk music um, in the early 20th century. And you can still go to this place called Cecil Sharp House in London that's the centre of the British folk music movement. But he worked with Mary Neal, who sort of did the same thing for dances. And she was a charity worker, and she set up an evening club in Summertown for um, local seamstresses, and it was called the Esperance Club. And she had this very admirable idea that the one thing that would improve their lives would be to teach them how to Morris dance. So she went, it sounds bad, but it works. She went all around um, the country, around rural England, and she found all these elderly Morris dancers and said, we need to keep your craft alive. Come to London and teach my girls how to do it. And this is a big success. And um, she published a book with all the Morris dances in it. And a lot of these girls became teachers and some of them became performers. And one of them even ended up going and starting a new life in America as a result of the dancing. And I, I hadn't realized that this is basically the reason that I learned clog dancing and country dancing in my Nottinghamshire primary school in the 1970s. Because the roots, the roots of the 20th century folk movement revival were, were, were laid by, by these people in the early 20th century. So we have her to thank for that then. We do, yes. <laughs> um, so was Morris dancing before then a purely or mainly a, a male dance then? Well, you know, um, with 
uh, I, I would like to put this big footnote to everything that I've been saying about upper class dancing and then lower class dancing. And lower class dancing, it's so hard to know what they were actually doing. Um, so if you look at the earliest book of dancers well, that, that there is really, um, it's John Playford's book called The English Dancing Master of 1650. Uh, 51, sorry. Uh, and some of the some of the nonsense that he he describes sound like they're quite formal. They're for courtiers and so on. And then others of of them, um, there's there's one that he calls an old country dance, and it's called the cushion dance. And the instructions that he gives are very very loose. You could almost interpret them in any way that you wanted. But it seemed to evolve a lot of skipping around and kneeling on a cushion and kissing people of the opposite sex. Now. <laughs> um, it's it's like sort of freestyle dancing that was always running alongside the more formal, better recorded um, styles of dancing, I would say. So I I do think that for normal people in the 17th century, dancing, everybody dancing on the village green was a hugely important um, part of life. Oh, can I tell you a story about the naughty maypole? Yes. <laughs> oh, there's a, there's a historian called Christopher March who I interviewed as part of the program, who, who has studied this, this sort of Puritan dislike of dancing. And um, he's examined a lot of church court records because this connection between dancing and sex is something that really bothered Puritans. So it's something that comes up in um, ecclesiastical courts the whole time. And on one, connect, one occasion, the connection was really well made because a village had had a maypole dance. And then after it was over, everybody had gone home except for one man and one woman who decided to take advantage of the moment. And they had sexual congress up against the maypole. But but they hadn't noticed that the maypole had a bell on the top of it. Oh, dear. So every, <laughs> you can imagine what happened. It was going, yeah. dong, dong, dong. And all of the rest of the village came out and caught them at it. And that's why, that's why they were, that's why they were had up. I, I can't think why, I, I just had to tell that story. <laughs> and, and do you think there's any dances that you're going to continue with? Um... I've learnt a lot of different dances while we were making this program, and the trouble is I've forgotten them all again now. You have to you have to keep on top of it, really. I I, I would say I'm I'm natu- I was most naturally joined to the Charleston, and and now there is a great movement. You can go to all sorts of places to do swing dancing. So I think I will be doing that again. Mid century, twentieth century dances like the swing and the Lindy Hop and the jive. That's what appeals to me, and I'm definitely going to give that another go. Perhaps the the ballroom ones to lend then. <laughs> Yes, that is just a really big commitment of of time and energy, but it's it's a wonderful thing to see. We went up to the the Tower Ballroom in Blackpool, that sort of spiritual heart of um, ballroom dancing to strict tempo. That's where they um, hold a lot of their competitions. And being there with Len Goodman was amazing because he he's a living god, and every <laughs> <laughs> and all the ballroom dancers were were so excited to see him. And it was it was. Really 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 romantic to take to to take to the floor i was dancing with a lot of different um people who would he would he would there they go there every day you can do it you can dance all day long and i did have a wonderful moment which was when i was doing the waltz with a gentleman and i was waltzing backwards and i suddenly realized i was talking to him and waltzing backwards it was like that moment in a if you're learning another language where, where you can you can speak for the first time without having to think about every single word oh it was wonderful that was Lucy Worsley. Cheek to Cheek, an intimate history of dance, begins on BBC Four next Monday, the 17th of November, at 9pm. Lucy has also written a piece about dancing in history, 
which appeared in the October issue of BBC History magazine. And you can still get hold of that as a back issue, both in print and digital. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. And now it's time for the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFarnan. The British Legion is celebrating its most successful poppy appeal ever after selling one million more than last year. The charity has this year sold more than 45 million poppies. Head of Remembrance for the British Legion, Stephen Clark, told The Independent earlier this week, This year it feels like there are more poppies out in the streets and a lot of different styles of poppy because Remembrance is very personal. In other news, a Tudor mansion once owned by the family of Queen Catherine Howard, the fifth wife of Henry VIII, is to be turned into luxury flats. Preston Hall, a 53,000-square-foot Grade II listed mansion near Aylesford, Kent, had been an NHS facility since 1945. Having fallen into disrepair, the grand building was sold by the Department of Health to Western Homes for a nominal fee, the Daily Mail reports. The property developer has announced it is going to, quote, meticulously restore Preston Hall and convert it into 36 apartments. The one, two and three bedroom apartments are expected to range from £170,000 to £750,000. Meanwhile, Mormon leaders have acknowledged for the first time that the church's 19th century founder and prophet, Joseph Smith, took between 30 and 40 wives some already married, and one just 14 years old. In an essay posted online, leaders admitted that Smith, 
who for the past 200 years has been portrayed in church materials as a loyal partner to his spouse, Emma, practiced polygamy. According to the essay, polygamy was commanded by God. Between 1834 and 1842, an angel came down to Smith no fewer than three times to urge him to take up the practice. During the third and final appearance, the angel came with a drawn sword, threatening Smith with destruction unless he obeyed the commandment. Smith probably did not have sexual relations with all of his wives because some were sealed to him only for the next life, the essay claims. However, for his first wife, Emma, polygamy was, quote, an excruciating ordeal. Thanks, Emma. Before our second interview, I'd like to quickly mention our next reader events, which are taking place in March next year. On the 21st and 22nd of that month, we're holding two-day events themed around Magna Carta and Waterloo. At each event, you'll get the chance to hear from a selection of expert speakers and enjoy a buffet lunch. For more details and tickets, please visit historyextra.com forward slash events. And as always, BBC History magazine subscribers will get discounted entry. Our second interview this week is with historian Dominic Sambrook, who is also a successful author and broadcaster. His latest TV series is Tomorrow's Worlds, the unearthly history of science fiction, which is due to begin on BBC Two next week. I caught up with Dominic a couple of weeks ago to find out how this popular genre of fiction can tell us a great deal about the historical events that inspired it. When would you say what we now know as science fiction began or was first written? Well, people have done all kinds of uh, stuff about the roots of science fiction, but I think the roots of what we can recognise as, as modern science fiction are really mid to late Victorian era. I mean, to me, science fiction comes out of a number of impulses. One is um, there's a theme of exploration and imperialism. It's a product of the imperialistic age. But I think it's also clearly a reflection of people's reactions to and anxieties about the pace of technological scientific change. And I think, you know, if you were doing sort of sci-fi family trees, um, you would trace almost all of the stuff that came out in the 20th century and 21st century back to really three progenitors, Mary Shelley, uh, Jules Verne and H.G. Wells, particularly Verne and Wells. And I think its roots are very firmly in that kind of tradition of what were called, then called scientific romances, kind of popular adventures and sort of stories of exploration and discovery of horror and excitement. They were aimed at the new mass market of the Victorian age and were then taken up by pulp magazines and by Hollywood in the 20th century and have now become so ubiquitous that we, we often don't even notice when something has science fiction elements because we've become so accustomed to them. And how closely did the science fiction authors actually follow the scientific trends of the day when they were writing? Oh, I think science fiction authors did. Certainly the original ones were often very interested in, in science. I mean, don't forget that the sort of um, rigid division between the sciences and the arts is a relatively modern innovation somebody like Jules Verne he took science very seriously and in his um in his novels people pay painstaking attention to to the sort of calculations and the experiments that they'll need to do to, to get where they want to go so when they go off to the moon in his one of his famous books where the, the first world space travel book this rocket is fired into space from a giant gun but they do all the calculations first and Wells too 
Now, Wells was somebody who was really interested in, in eugenics and in sort of post-Darwin science and so on. You know, these were people who were very up-to-date with what was going on and were passionately interested in technology, as, of course, everybody was at the time. So somebody like Wells, I mean, Wells is writing the 1890s and 1900s, in, in arguably the two decades which have been in modern history most radically transformed by technological change. You think of electricity, you think of the motor car, the aeroplane, the cinema, and so on. That's the backdrop um, against which Wells wrote The Time Machine and The Island of Dr. Moreau and War of the Worlds and so on. So they're very much of that kind of time and they reflect this passionate interest that in, in those days almost all educated people had in the kind of scientific revolutions of the day. When does science move away from just literature to be um, embodied in other art forms as well? Well, I think the medium that in many ways we automatically associate with science fiction is the cinema. And Hollywood um, took it up very quickly. So Georges Méliès, French filmmaker, whose story is told in uh, Martin Scorsese's film Hugo, which was a big success a few years ago. Méliès made a film, A Voyage dans la Lune, of uh, Verne's novel, and, and he already, even at that early stage, he was introducing sort of more fantastic elements, which is actually borrowed from H.G. Wells, which were of a sort of, you know, they have a sort of glorified punch-up on the planet and there's insects and all the rest of it. And it's already got that sort of slightly melodramatic, pulp fiction-y kind of um, element that we often associate with science fiction, basically, you know, little green men and, and men who look like aliens and so on. And to Hollywood, I think that was a really... Um, a godsend, and and certainly to people who were doing the sort of the serial format in the in the thirties, so Flash Gordon and so on. Uh, science fiction it was escapist, it was exotic and exciting, but it was also a good way of thinly veiled uh, satires of your own society or predictions of where you might be going. So you think of great films from the twenties, like Fritz Lang's film Metropolis. You know that's a science fiction film and one of the all time great science fiction films, if not the greatest. But, of course, it's also very much a product of an age where people feared revolution and when there was a lot of commentary about mechanisation and the assembly line and, you know, effectively robots and so on and so forth. So even at that early stage, there's this sort of curious, double-facing nature to science fiction. So it's both a melodramatic and escapist, which ensures its popular appeal, but at the same time, it is often born out of very contemporary political and social concerns. And that's obviously true of H.G. Wells as much as anybody in The Time Machine and The War of the Worlds. They're absolutely kind of, in some ways, satirical novels, social commentaries of their time. And that's a theme that science fiction has carried all the way through to the present. And, and one of the things that means that it's not just, you know, there's this sort of stereotype of science fiction. It's either childish escapism or it's a kind of a refuge for, for sort of people in anoraks. But I, I think there's much more to it than that. I think it's much more, you know, future historians, I think, will look at it and say, what a fantastic way this is into the mindset, into the imagination of our 20th and 21st century forebears. I think it's in science fiction that so many of our hopes and our anxieties have been best explored. Why do you think it is that science fiction writers have been so keen to bring in present day concerns into their writing, which, as you say, is often very escapist? I don't think it's that science fiction writers have artificially inserted contemporary concerns or they've turned science fiction into a vehicle for sort of social satire or whatever. I think it's always been that right from the beginning. So when Verne was writing in the mid-19th century, he was writing at a time when, to most readers, 
a story of exploration or sort of adventure in an exotic place would automatically bring to mind the great sort of Victorian adventurers, the kind of Henry Morton Stanleys and whatnot, the scramble for Africa, the advent of imperialism and so on. So automatically, from the very beginning, that sort of link between the contemporary and the exotic was already there in Vernon. And of course, in Wells, Wells was a social commentator, he was a political writer, he was an early socialist, and he would not, I think, have seen a distinction between his scientific romances and his sort of social commentaries. So science fiction writers have sort of always been true to that legacy. And I think it's because often the events of the 20th century, let's say, have been to people frightening, baffling, bewildering, almost impossibly complicated and so on. And science fiction and the use of the imagination actually offers a very good way to get your, get your head around what happened in this sort of bloodiest of centuries. So writers like Kurt Vonnegut or somebody, you know, William Golding's Lord of the Flies is in to some extent a science fiction novel. It's set slightly in the future in the aftermath, immediate aftermath of a nuclear war. Think about writers like Kingsley Amis or J.G. Ballard, people who you wouldn't necessarily think of as science fiction writers. You know, they don't write about alien empires and men with five heads, but there's a science fiction element to what they're writing about. And I think that, you know, there's, Literary scholars often argue that you know, in the 20th century, fantastic writing and fantasy and science fiction has been the key genre through which people have made sense of events like the First and Second World Wars. You, know, you think of Tolkien and The Lord of the Rings um, as, a, as a very good example. So I think science fiction, there is always this temptation to slightly ghettoize it and to sort of assume that, you know, to turn it into the kind of a literary equivalent of of people who stand on platforms writing down train numbers. But I think that actually does it a great disservice. I think from the very outset, it was quite a political form and one with huge scope for kind of social commentary. Do you feel that science fiction tends to reflect more the anxieties than the hopes of a particular era? It always feels like it's quite negatively framed in that regard. Well, I, I certainly agree that uh, science fiction tends to a sort of pessimism. But I mean, arguably, that's because most writers are drawn to, to pessimism one way or another. I mean, I know we like happy endings um, in our narratives, but a, a degree of conflict and tension is essential for any good story. And I think science fiction writers, I think they've been profoundly influenced by the world wars, the Holocaust, the experience of the dictatorships and so on. Those themes often crop up um, in sci-fi writing and in sci-fi films. And I think it seems to be, you know, a, a sort of Panglossian, utopian vision of a, a better future, a better world is actually artistically and kind of dramatically not very interesting. I mean, you've got no conflict, so you've got nowhere to go. Your characters have nothing to do. Whereas a, a darker one, I think it slightly titillates us. It's like scratching a scab or something, you know, the idea that the world just around the corner will be even worse, indeed far worse than our own, is something that, that fascinates us. And in a sense, it makes us feel a little bit better about the world that we're living in. And of course, for, for writers who are a bit more political, by creating these kind of elaborate warnings about the future, they can, as they see it, say something about our present and encourage people to act a bit differently or vote differently or whatever it might be. So sort of painting a dark future has all kinds of benefits, I guess, for the writer. And, you know, if you look at... Um, you know, films like Blade Runner or something. It's obviously extremely successful and influential, so it's kind of the way to go. Over the, the past half century or so, how important was the Cold War to the development of science fiction? 
Well, I think the Cold War um, was a gift for science fiction writers in all kinds of ways because its themes about sort of how to organise a society, the place of the individual within society and so on, were classic science fiction themes. But also the Cold War was um, an ideological conflict fought with one eye very clearly on the future. So the, the claims of the rival ideologies were all about the future and what kind of future we will build, a very different one from our our adversaries who are building a, a dreadful future that's a sort of gigantic nightmare. And, you know, you, you look at things like um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, great film of the 1950s, American film, in which the inhabitants of a Californian suburb are sort of replaced by clones and the people who live next door to you turn out to be alien interlopers. You, you may, in fact, be, be friends with alien interlopers. Your wife or your husband may be an alien interloper. I think that's the kind of slightly paranoid fantasy that's very clearly driven by Cold War concerns. Fears of reds under the beds or, or conversely, you know, people have argued about invasion of the body snatchers, whether it's a satire of Eisenhower's kind of 1950s Cold War America or whether it's satire of the Soviet Union. So I think the Cold War hung very heavily over science fiction, really from the late 1940s, George Orwell's 1984 and so on, all the way through to the 1980s. Uh, and in many ways, you can't understand science fiction during that period without the Cold War, without that kind of ideological conflict and those competing claims about who was better fulfilling individual needs and who was better building a model of humanity in the future. Coming on to the present day, uh, what do you feel that the, the most recent science fiction um, art is, is telling us about today? I suspect that when people look back, they'll look back at somebody like William Gibson, who was writing in the 1980s, Neuromancer, as, the, in many ways, the, a prophet of the 21st century. Gibson, it was Gibson who famously popularised the term cyberspace. And Neuromancer's novel is this kind of vision of a, of a world where you can go into cyberspace, where the internet has become all-encompassing. And this is really before the internet ever in any meaningful way got off the ground. And I think there's, a, there's that kind of move inwards, almost to the world of the of virtual reality and the kind of digital world, I suspect that's really the future of science fiction. If you think about science fiction for most of the 20th century, it was about two things, I think. Our relationship with the machine and our relationship with space and the exploration of conquest of space. Uh, machines, you know, there was this sort of idea that machines were replacing human beings and that it was only a matter of time before we had kind of anthropomorphic robots who would look like us and all the rest of it. And that clearly hasn't really happened. But also the space thing has kind of just run into the sand, really. You know, there was a sense in the 1950s and 1960s that before long everybody would be taking, you know, day trips to Mars. That clearly hasn't happened, isn't going to happen anytime soon. So I think science fiction, the sort of space element of it, still titillating and it's still exciting and a kind of escapism, but I don't think it has the kind of intellectual clout and momentum that it once did in the days of Arthur C. Clarke and so on. I think stuff with computers and virtual reality and what we're doing to ourselves, that embrace of the digital, I think that's probably the future of science fiction, certainly in the kind of medium term, because that's the technology that is reshaping our world every day, that has reshaped our daily lives since the 1980s. And so I think that's, in some ways, science fiction's role will be to explore the consequences of that. Of course, the other big thing would be maybe um, genetic engineering or kind of genome projects and, and the consequences for medicine and so on. I think those two, you know, we don't know how by 2050, how much they will have redefined what it is to be human, how long we live, how we live, 
what we can predict about our own longevity or our lifespan or whatever. And I think science fiction will probably have a lot to say about those things as well. Well, as a personal level, have, have you yourself always been a science fiction fan? Well, the funny thing is that when the BBC talked to me about this series, I, one of the things I said to them was, you know, I'm not really a science fiction fan. I don't define myself as a sci-fi fan. You know, I don't go to science fiction conventions. I don't, I'm not necessarily drawn to the science fiction shelves in, in bookshops. And they said, well, you know, here's a list of the things we'd like to, to do. And they sort of rattled through this list, which, you know, started with H.G. Wells and films of the 1920s and films of the 50s and, you know, Brian Aldiss, Ursula K. Le Guin, these great writers, Star Wars, Doctor Who, all these kind of things. And as they sort of went through it, I was kind of mentally ticking them off. And I thought, you know, I have pretty much seen or read everything on this list. And it struck me that actually we, we, we have this idea of kind of science fiction fans, but almost all of us have seen. I mean, I, there can be very few people who haven't seen numerous science fiction films without necessarily counting themselves sci-fi fans. So it's kind of wormed its way into our imagination without us noticing. And when I then thought back to my own childhood, the two things that, you know, when I was seven or eight or nine, you know, I was obsessed by, like everybody else born in the early 1970s, I was completely besotted with Star Wars and it absolutely monopolized my imagination. And, you know, every Saturday night or I used to hide behind the sofa and watch Doctor Who. And, you know, Doctor Who played a huge part in my imagination as well. So science fiction, I think, even people who tell you they don't like it, I mean, I, I would never have said that I didn't like it. I always liked it, but I never considered myself a buff. But I think even people who, who don't think of themselves as fans would be surprised if you sort of sat them down and you said, but you've seen, you have, have you seen Blade Runner? Have you seen The Terminator? Have you read this? Have you seen that on TV? And, and I think it's seeped into our sense of our, our world and who we are and, and all these kinds of things, almost without us noticing. Uh, and that's why I think when people do look back in couple of hundred years time i think literary historians and intellectual and cultural historians will be drawn to science fiction as in many ways the most interesting and distinctive medium of our times and just finally do you have now a particular favorite science fiction book uh, tv series or film you know what when we were making this series i watched star wars again which i haven't watched for ages and i was really struck by how good it was as pure entertainment as pure escapism i actually think there are very few things in the last 30 or 40 years that are as well-crafted or as effective. But I was also, there were two short stories that I reread while we were making the series. One was A Sound of Thunder by Ray Bradbury, which is about the dangerous consequences of traveling in time and changing the, the, the past so that when you go back to the present, the present has then changed. And it's, it's very short, very economical, but it's, it's brilliant and it's really intellectually interesting. And then the other one, which is very moving, is Brian Aldiss' story, Super Toys Last All Summer Long, which again is very short. And it was the inspiration for the film AI, developed by Stanley Kubrick and made by Steven Spielberg. And it's actually, a, I think, a brilliant story, not just on our relationship, man and machine, but on our responsibility for our creations about parenthood and love and all these kinds of things. And it's packed into what must only be a few thousand words, a very, very effective short story and in some ways i think short stories anyway are very neglected subgenre but i think science fiction works really well in short stories because you often at the heart of a science fiction story is one idea one simple kind of twist on reality or one what if 
And in a short story, you can give that space to breathe and then just leave it to sort of sit there and linger in the reader's mind without over-elaborating it or over-egging the pudding. So that was something that I really um, enjoyed doing when we were making the series, is sort of rereading some of these things and seeing which of them stood up and, and which of them kind of didn't and which of them you know, stayed in your mind days after reading them. That was Dominic Sambrook. Tomorrow's Worlds, the unearthly history of science fiction, is due to begin on the evening of Saturday the 22nd of November on BBC Two. You can also read an article by Dominic on science fiction and history in the December issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Also in this month's issue, we uncover the lost voices of Celtic Britain, we explore the changing nature of First World War remembrance, and we find out why the 1864 presidential election may have been Abraham Lincoln's greatest test. You can get hold of the magazine in all good news agents and digitally. And now is also a great time to take out a subscription. If you're in the UK, you'll get to choose a fantastic free history book when you subscribe to the print edition, including new accounts of The Wars of the Roses, Thomas Cromwell and Waterloo. To take advantage of this deal, please visit historyextra.com forward slash subscribe but it will be available for a limited time only. Just before we go, I'd like to read out a couple of messages from listeners that have been sent in recently. Firstly, here is Naeem Friwat, who lives in Lebanon. He writes, I discovered your podcasts quite by mistake, and allow me to tell you they are a delight to listen to. I commute every morning in terrible traffic conditions, and since I was a latecomer to the podcasts, I have the luxury to listen to a new one every day from now until probably December 2015, with complete blissful disregard to what goes on around me on the road. In addition to the clarity in which each topic is presented, I personally benefit a lot from them because as a Lebanese, we are quite knowledgeable about French history, but only vaguely aware of the British influence in the politics of this area from the mid-19th century until the mid-20th century, and so these podcasts clarify British history to me in particular the local British history, as opposed to British influence and colonisation around the world. And indeed I can find parallels between some of the events that happened to the royalty, and therefore to the general populace in Britain, and others that took and are still taking place in Lebanon. We were also recently contacted by Abby Diamond, who lives in Oregon in the US. Abby says, I enjoyed listening about the Georgian Garden at Hampton Court. When watching a programme or listening to something about places in history, it's mostly about the area as a whole or about the people who lived there at certain times. Not a bad thing, mind you, but there is more going on that I enjoy learning about and the gardens is part of it. The fact is that what was grown at certain times for various reasons helps us to get a better understanding of the people. I'm so glad this podcast is available across the pond for us Yanks. Keep up the great work. I look forward to each new episode. Well, thanks to both of you for your feedback. And if you happen to miss the episode that Abby is talking about, it was broadcast on the 16th of October this year, and it is still, of course, available for download. Well, that is pretty much it for this week. Do join us next time when we'll be chatting with Bernard Cornwall and Paul O'Keefe in what will be something of a Battle of Waterloo special. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. 
Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. 